This week on A Lively Experiment, peaceful protests over the weekend are followed by a night of destruction in downtown Providence. And as Rhode Islanders enter phase two, are we going too fast or too slowly? We'll hear from the head of the state's Hospitality Association. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Bill Bartholomew, creator of the Bartholomew Town podcast, Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi, and Scott McKay, political analyst for The Public's Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome in. I'm Jim Hummel. We are back virtually to talk about all the events of the week. We have an awful lot to catch up on, including all things coronavirus. But first, the violence overnight on Monday in Providence mirrors a lot of the unrest across the country. Will this happen in the coming weeks and months, and what will be the state's response? Let's start with Bill Bartholomew. Bill, you were in the thick of it over the weekend and into Monday morning. What did you see down there? Sure, Jim. Well, first of all, great to be back here with a lively experiment. Um, the, the, the stark contrast between Saturday's protest, which was a legitimate protest, 2,000 or more folks gathered downtown in Kennedy Plaza and then moving to the State House with legitimate concerns um, about systemic inequities. And it was a peaceful, uh, there, there were a little bit of, uh, there was a little bit of vandalism, I suppose, uh, you, you know, right at the end of the protest and people wrote with spray paint on the steps of the state house but by and large a peaceful demonstration fast forward to monday night and in the middle of the night i started getting text messages hey are you downtown you got to get downtown so forth and when i arrived the smell of gasoline um residual effects of uh, a, a police car being set on fire glass shattered all throughout the providence place small providence place air water place park area um, even all the way down on Lower Westminster Street. And it was clear that a separate uh, riot, uh, small compared to some of the things we're seeing around the country, but undoubtedly a riot had broken out. And as we're learning here over the last few days, the participants in that riot, um, very different from those who were downtown on Saturday for the Black Lives Matter protest, we're starting to see that these were mostly younger 18 to 23 year old suburban kids that seem to sort of usurp the momentum that had been built on Saturday by the Black Lives Matter protesters. So an unfortunate situation. Now the concern is as we see the helicopters in the sky and the National Guard and state police patrolling throughout the state, what will happen next? There's another rally scheduled for, we're taping on a Thursday, so there's another rally scheduled for tomorrow. Um, and the question is, will that devolve into a riot the way that Monday night's affairs went? And let's hope not. And Lisa, it's, you know, all these businesses downtown were just trying to get over being closed and open up again. And, and then the damage. And I know, you, you know, you work for Johnson & Wales, your campus downtown, you're right in the thick of it down there. Right. You know, sometimes we say only in Rhode Island. And this time I thought, how can this be happening in Rhode Island? I expect this to happen in major cities like LA and Chicago and New York, but I don't expect to turn on the TV and see this happening in downtown Providence. And what you said about the businesses, it just broke my heart when I watched so many of these businesses 
that have been waiting for the second phase of the economy to open up so they can get back to work, so they can get their workers back to work, so they can start making money. And to have these looters come in and just take away all their merchandise, I, you know, my heart just broke for all those business owners. Scott, what do you make of it? Well, you know, I think Bill touched on the right tone, which is that basically this is a small minority of thousands of people who are protesting uh, serious racial problems across the country. Of course, the killing of Mr. Floyd uh, out in Minneapolis. And this has been a national, national protest. And it was a small minority of folks. Now, that said, my heart, as Lisa said, just goes out to some of these small business people who have spent some of them, their adult lives, building up their businesses, uh, working very hard to try to bring back, frankly, parts of Providence that Jim and I go back a long way uh, in the city. And we know that downtown was, you know, for a long time was kind of an empty zone there. And it's been great to see all of this economic activity in places like Westminster Street, Washington Street, all those areas. And to see this destruction is very, very sad. Our building, uh, our studio is in the Rhode Island Foundation. We got hit, I know Johnson and Wales. So that's really sad, but I hope, I just hope that the protests from now on, that people understand that they have the right to petition the government for change and that they go out and do that and not give in to the looters and uh, people who wanna cause trouble. I think that uh, Mr. Floyd's brother said it best when he got up the other day in Minneapolis and was there with a megaphone and simply said, you know, vandalism looting is not going to bring my brother back. Sure, and you know, it's funny how the coronavirus always is kind of in the background there because the governor and the health director, Bill, we've been at those press conferences, are like, well, protesting is fine, but they're gonna send health department people down to make sure everybody has masks, right? Probably not the thing you're thinking the rioters are probably not thinking that but that's been kind of the backdrop for the world we live in right Bill? well absolutely and, and that's the main second story i suppose is that this has actually pushed coronavirus in some cases out of the public consciousness for a moment and um you know it's a difficult balance for any leader particularly governor Raimondo here as she has for the last what two months or more um two and a half months now come out every day and emphasize social distancing and not gathering in large groups and testing the waters and taking it slow. And then, like I said, you have 2000 folks gathered in Kennedy Plaza. And look, most of those people were in masks. I was there for the entire day on Saturday and it, it but not social distance. I mean, that's impossible to accomplish in a protest setting when you're packed into a park or on the state house steps. So a difficult balance for, for, for a First Amendment and just from even a political position for the governor. I mean, she can't shut down these protests given the climate we live in. At the same time, she's got to take into consideration the significant health concerns that are going to come out of gathering a bunch of people in a, even outdoors in a, in, in a tight space. Well, you know, the irony that I found watching this in, in what you said, Bill, about the delicate balance that she has for weeks now, she has been saying that people can't congregate in church, that only up to five people. So what about freedom of religion? So she's been adamant to tell churchgoers and temple goers and, and worshipers that they can't come together, but yet she allowed you know, 2,000 people to come to the state house and, and, and gather together, though even though it's social distancing, 
people in church can social distance too. That's the big, been the big push and pull as we're coming back, you know, how, and she's talked about that in the daily briefings, the difficulty of what, you know, how fast to go. I talked to Dale Venturini. Let's talk about phase two. Dale Venturini with the Hospitality Association, she likened it to stepping on the accelerator and the brake at the same time trying to get back. So that's a tough call, Lisa. I mean, do you bring, the church has been the main issue and funerals, you know, you read all the obits in the journal, it says, Due to the coronavirus, you know, we'll have to have a celebration later on. I did talk to Dale Venturini. Uh, they represent 800 members, restaurants, hotels, the suppliers. And she talked a little bit. Phase two began just Monday. I caught up with her Tuesday to see how things are going from their perspective. Here's a little of my interview with her. You know, the hospitality business is an antithesis to social distancing. We, we go out to have fun, to interact, to be with other people. So now we've got to retrain ourselves to keep people apart and that, that's hard. So some people have chosen to wait a little bit. Some people have jumped right in and they're doing well. Um, we're still trying to figure out how 50% capacity plus takeout will sustain them. There are a lot of other industries. You can write one page of guidelines, and we've got several pages of guidelines here for our industry. We're not cookie cutter. Every single restaurant is different in their operation. Every single hotel is a little different in their operation. So you can't just say, this, this is the 10 steps you have to take, because every time you lay the 10 steps out, we get hundreds of questions. The hotels, will, it, the, the churn is going to be slow to come back, because once we lifted the quarantine, now we're starting to see some people start to book. It's all about the comfort level of the person, whether or not they were willing to travel. So of course, then there's the big ripple effect. And Scott, this plays right into the budget. You think, well, the casinos have been shut down. You think of all the revenue that's being lost and this tourist season looks like it's gonna be in second gear for most of the summer. Yeah, I mean, you're having a real problem. Places like Newport, you know, uh, some of us are old enough to remember when Newport was a Navy town, the Navy left in the 70s, and they reinvented themselves as a tourist magnet. And for Newport to lose an entire summer means that some of these small businesses are going to really run up against a brick wall. I talked to uh, the head of the Chamber of Commerce recently in Newport County, and everybody has this image of Newport and the mansions and the wealthy people with their yachts but the fact of the matter is, is that 80% of the businesses who belong to the chamber down in Newport have 10 employees or less. And so this is going to be a really, really tough summer. And I can't see how, and I did a story last week, a commentary on the restaurant industry, talked to Ms. Venturini and a bunch of other folks. And for most restaurant people, they'll be honest with you, except for a few who really kind of focus on takeout but most of them can't make a living with 50% occupancy. The business is not built for that. And there's not every restaurant has this option for outdoor seating. So I think this industry is going to need uh, a lot more help and it's going to be a long way to go before they get back to anything that looks like a profitable business. And it's very sad because we all know, that places like Newport and Providence are among the countries of foodie destinations. 
I mean, we, we know something about summer here in Rhode Island that is so short for us that we look forward to Memorial Day and Labor Day and we want to get out and we want to visit the beaches and we want to go to and we definitely want to eat. Um, I agree with um, Dale that it's going to be up to people's comfort level. But one thing that hasn't been discussed is liability. So when you're bringing people back, are you, you know, are you comfortable that you are able to do it? And people are so quick uh, on saying, I'm going to sue if I get sick. So that's another issue that businesses have to take into account as they start to open up. One thing about the restaurant business, though, every restaurant owner knows one thing, that you're one salmonella case away from financial ruin. And anybody who's worked in that industry, I did as a young fellow, well, I think a lot of us have, knows that sanitation is always a top priority for any of the chefs or restaurants. If you've ever worked in a kitchen, boy, you know, they come down on you really hard. If you're not doing things right, if you're leaving that mayonnaise out too long, if you're not washing your hands, if you're not staying clean. So I think the industry is less of a problem than some of the habits of the customers. And what I worry about is in the summer, we've seen this around the country and some of the photos we've seen on the national news is you take young people with raging hormones and um, you put it together with drinking. And I don't know how you enforce social distancing. We, you know, it looks like a night in July on block Island. And this is going to be a real challenge for this industry, which is so important. You know, almost 70,000 people in Rhode Island uh, earn a paycheck from the hospitality industry, excuse me, just the restaurant side. It's 80,000 if you count the hotels and the rest of the industry, the suppliers and so on. So this is a huge piece of our economy that I think is going to be a really problematic going forward if things don't open up soon. And one thing, my wife's an infectious disease doctor, and one of the things about the protests that she was watching and saying, you know, uh, this could lead to another surge, the same as reopening too early and allowing people to party too much. We're already seeing that in some of the southern states that allowed the beaches open. There's been an increase in the number of COVID-19 cases. So I think we have to be careful. We saw yesterday the, the Preservation Society announcing massive layoffs when it comes to the Newport mansions. Obviously, the folk and jazz festivals canceled. That's $60 million out the, out the window. But something that also needs to be addressed is worker safety. And by the way, most of the folks who are working in the kitchens and on the delivery routes, in some cases as servers, are some of the most vulnerable folks in our broad state population. So you mentioned coming back too soon and risks to the customers. There's also great risks to those who work in these environments. And in many cases, they're uninsured or have very little access to the type of health care that ownership does. Now, that's not to say that restaurants shouldn't reopen or anything like that, but it's just a major factor that needs to be considered whether you're talking about Block Island, Providence, South County, Newport, Bristol, whatever it may be, it's got to be at the epicenter of the discussion as we move forward with this. Well, let's be really honest. One thing that social distancing and the virus has shown is it's really brought into a very raw, but focus, visual focus, the inequities in our society. And not just racial and economic, uh, but actually social distancing, there are those who can make a living, mainly white collar folks, social distancing and working from home, uh, doing what we're doing right now, frankly, uh, over Zoom, over social media. And then there are the people who, you know, clean the floors in the hospital, the people who stock the shelves in the supermarkets, 
the people for whom they can't really social distance and make a living. And it's almost like two classes of people uh, nowadays. Bill and I have been daily briefing buddies together and we get a chance to talk while we're waiting for the governor to come in. And Bill, you said something very sobering the other day in your original life and in your well current life on hold, you're a musician and you play a lot of gigs and you had said to me, well, tell me what you had said to me about your advice or what your thinking is for musicians in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I would find another way to make money. You know, I, I would use this as an opportunity to explore secondary incomes and, and other interests or find other ways to generate revenue as a musician. Uh, fortunately for me, you know, speaking personally, this is something that with the encouragement of my wife, who's also a musician and went back to school at RISD to, to do this years ago, but exploring multiple income streams, because frankly, I don't see an environment that will be safe for a performer by and large. And look, there are going to be some cases where you can play outdoors or you can, you know, you, you, you've got someone who is just a little bit more, you know, bold and will go into a tight environment. But the guidelines that are set forth right now for musicians and live music, I can't think of any space in the state which would allow for those to, to uh, take place unless you're talking about, in some cases, outdoor places like Ballard's on Block Island. By and large, that's an industry that we're supposedly the creative capital here in Providence, right? Well, that's going to collapse. And frankly, I don't see any way for that to come back anytime soon. So unfortunately, the sobering news is it's going to take a while. If you're on the unemployment, um, hope it gets extended, uh, including the $600 a month bonus, and use this as an opportunity to reinvent the wheel. Let's Let's shift gears just a second. We've got so much to get in uh, in this half hour. Lisa, let me go to you on the budget. Um, a lot of people have wondered where the legislature is. Now, I know the governor's been dominating with all of her press conferences and the coronavirus, but we're now staring at an eight, $900 million caucus uh, uh, deficit. I know the minority caucus that said, look, we want some oversight. We want a, a foot in the door. And the speaker's been pretty adamant that he doesn't really think that's necessary. Right. So uh, before the coronavirus, when we had the lively experiment before uh, earlier this year, we were talking about the pretty significant budget hole that's in the current budget that needs to be filled. And then since then, because of everything that's happened, it's even bigger as we go forward into the next budget year. So um, what I'm hearing and what's been pretty consistent over the past number of weeks is that they'll come, the, the General Assembly will come back. I'm hearing that they'll just do a supplemental budget, just plug the hole for the current year come back later in the summer, let's see what's happening with the federal money coming in and whether they're able to use that if, we'll, if the restrictions will be lifted to do that. And then beyond that, let's just do some municipal um, bills and marriage bills and then that would be it for the General Assembly session. As far as the money, what's been interesting here is the money that's coming in appears to be under the control of Governor Raimondo, the $1.25 billion that's come in. And when we talk about the balance of power in the General Assembly, pre-COVID, I would argue with anybody that the speaker was the person in power, especially in terms of, of the budget. The governor submitted her budget, but then he, he said that he would take over. She has her hands on the purse strings of that 1.25 billion. So in my eyes, it's really been a, a tilt in the power here of the governor now over the speaker and the budget. You know, I don't think so. And here's what I think, and I'll tell you why. Both the governor and the legislative leadership are frankly taking a fairly large gamble here. They're rolling the dice on more federal money. If you talk to folks at the state house, 
They say they're doing this on the advice of Senator Jack Reed, who's on the Appropriations Committee and who, of course, is a leader in what they call the small state minimums. There's people like Jack Reed and Pat Leahy who are in these small states. They're on the Appropriations Committee. They're senators. What they do is they fix the formulas so that the small states like Rhode Island or Vermont, uh, Idaho, places with small populations, get a larger proportion of federal money than larger states such as New York, California, Massachusetts. Now, what they've decided to do is just keep spending money at the current rate and hope that by the middle of July, uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans relent here and do something to help the states. The idea is that the red states are getting battered by this too. We all know that most red states or a lot of red states rely more on, it, on sales taxes than places like Rhode Island blue states which rely more on income taxes. So they're kind of rolling the dice here. There's a, some smart moves they're making, which is trying to use furloughs and work share uh, with the state's uh, employees, which hasn't really been done on any big scale since the banking crisis back in 1991 and 1992. So we're going to have to see how this works. It's kind of sad that there hasn't been more transparency here, but then again, social distancing, uh, hopefully the politicians aren't using uh, the current virus crisis, you know, as a kind of mask, I hate to say it that way, but as a cloak to go back into the old backroom deals and secrecy that we've seen for many years at the Statehouse and a lack of public transparency. And that should concern us all. Yeah, just, just yesterday, I asked when they rolled out the furlough plan, you know, that, that will supposedly save about $5 million for the state. I asked Brett Smiley, the director of the Department of Administration, well, how do you, where's the other $795 million going to come from? And, you know, there was a lot of um, word salad there. I mean, look, you can turn on, on the tolls and, and toll every motor vehicle that comes through. You can have the state can start selling cannabis. They can raise the the income and sales tax and uh, you know, they can put people on the corner of every major intersection with a chock full of nuts can and, and, and hope for donations. Um, you know, there's really no solution right now besides that, as you mentioned, Scott, that major gamble of the, the, the federal stimulus money. And frankly, I think there's a lot of American citizens and, and, and others who are just sitting back and hoping for some sort of bailout for themselves personally. So you have to think that that's coming, uh, that the governor is maybe not tipping her hand completely, but that there is information, whether it's from Senator Reid or otherwise, that that bailout is going to hit Rhode Island because otherwise, what can you do? Well, Nick Mattiello was on the radio yesterday and he seemed not blasé, but he was like, well, I feel pretty good about this. And there's no way, honestly, Scott, we've seen big deficits before. And Lisa, there, there's no way that they can cut enough to get out of it. And the governor's been very clear about that. The question is, and I did a story about the, the $1.25 billion they have now. She's holding a little bit back on that, whereas the lieutenant governor argues that should be going to small businesses. But she's holding it back if another... Uh, federal stimulus doesn't come through, she could use however many hundreds of millions of dollars to try to plug that hole if they say that's it for stimulus money. Yeah, I mean, the problem is what are the federal rules going to be? How much of this money can you use for very legitimate COVID-19 uh, type of 
expenses over time, uh, people on the front lines, first responders, the people who've been really stretched to the max during this. The other thing is, don't forget, there's always a deal. It is the state house, And in the end, there may have to be a grand compromise where, for instance, uh, no more money, uh, the $47 million or so that they want to put into extra state aid doesn't go anywhere. Speaker Mattiello has to take a hit and say, look, we're going to have to slow down the phase out of the car tax. Uh, we're not going to be able to give raises to state employees. We're going to have to do more furloughs. And we're going to have to do something about Medicaid. Nearly 70% of the budget, don't forget, is in social services and education aid to the cities and towns. And that's a big number. Right. And you that's where the money is. You can't be saving on uh, pay paper clips and uh, office supplies. Folks, no, you're not the 5 million. You're right, Jim, $5 million in, in a, in a budget of $10 billion and a deficit. I mean, it's not even a small drip in the bucket. Folks, so there's going to have to be some really large decisions made if the federal money doesn't allow the states to plug it, plug their deficits with Scott, the federal money. Scotty, let me hold you there. We only have a couple of minutes left. Let's go. We can't forget outrages, right? Uh, Lisa, let's start with you. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? Um, actually, I have an out, I guess it's an outrage and it's a few weeks old, but since we haven't been on the air, I think I'm I, I, okay to go forward with it. It's been almost a month since the Providence Journal made its decision to stop um, um, having editorials in the newspaper. And when I picked up the newspaper to read that, I was just so disappointed. Um, this is our paper of record here in the state of Rhode Island. It's been that way for so many years, that power, powerful voice that the Providence Journal has had through their editorial page. Um, so many campaigns I've worked on, it was a, almost a rite of passage to go up to that fourth floor at the Providence Journal and be um, chaperoned into the room with all the dark wall paneling and to have the editorial board there just waiting to grill and see if we can get the endorsement. They really just advocated their power when they made that decision. And I'm so disappointed and I'm so outraged that our major newspaper decided to do that. All right, so, uh, Bill, what do you have this week? Health equity, we've seen this play out in the, in the duration of this crisis. Um, there's a lack of testing, translation, transportation services still in the urban core. We've got a 26% positivity rate in Central Falls, similar numbers in other parts of the urban core. This isn't random. This is a result of systemic inequity that is not only here in Rhode Island, but you know, there's a lot of talk about Rhode Island being a blue state and so on and so forth. And again, I don't think there's any evil intentions or anything like that on the part of the administration but it's time to create brick and mortar, tangible solutions to address not only health inequity, but all sorts of uh, inequality and baseline fundamental systemic breakdowns that are gonna result in problems like we see with the coronavirus. We've gotta do it now. We should use this moment with respect to the protests uh, as a chance to address other areas. And those who turn their back on this problem and put out you know, uh, conflicting or false messaging. There's a far right group here in Rhode Island that's been putting out messaging that would suggest that, you know, everything's hunky dory. Uh, when in reality, there are people suffering who have not gotten access to testing in certain parts of the state. That needs to be changed immediately. And it's outrageous for anyone to turn their back on fellow Rhode Islanders. Scott, you have the last 30 seconds of the show. What's your outrage? Well, I think we have to get elections right. We're looking at a year where we're going to have the most consequential. Uh, elections of our lifetimes for a lot of us coming up here in 
the primaries in September and in November. We just saw the presidential primary. It was nothing much of a primary, but boy, there were some real problems with the mail-in ballots. We have to get this right in November. There's still a lot of old people in our state, and we're going to have to do this right. So Secretary Corbea and the Board of Elections have to get together and make sure our elections are run better than they were last Tuesday. All right, folks, to be continued, thank you for joining us. We're great to be back. We'll see you back here next week as a lively experiment continues. a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.